Welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jason. And today we're going off-world to talk about planetary science. Yeah, this is a fabulous extraterrestrial episode I've been really looking forward to. Uh, so tell us, Jason, wh- why are we talking about this? This is this sounds really, really exciting. Yeah, it's quite topical because NASA have landed a new rover on Mars, the rover Perseverance. It's a part of the new, um, or at least latest, Mars exploration program to land apparatus robotics on Mars, observing, oh. gathering data and figuring out four main pillars of science, which I I find really exciting. And and I mean, it's just such science fiction sometimes when you read it, you forget this is real. This is really happening. (laughs) Um, People have probably seen it in the news. Uh, This is Perseverance, right? Perseverance. It was launched in um, July last year, 2020. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like launched during the pandemic as well. So imagine how difficult this is at the best of times. Yes. So let's throw uh, let's throw social distancing and all kinds of sanitation into the mix before we yeah. can get this thing off the ground. Yeah. Yeah, you can see them all in the control room on the landing date. So it touched down the 18th of February this year. So just uh, okay. yeah. it's just shy of two months ago. So what's Perseverance's core mission then? What's what's it there to do? Yeah, it's forming part of these uh, four pillars, as I mentioned, the science goals of the exploration program, which are to determine if life ever arose on Mars, number one, okay. characterise the climate of Mars, characterise... That's a biggie. <laughs> yeah, if they do it, yeah. <laughs> Not so far, but um, it's going to look at mineralogy, uh, soil samples, and ultimately get observational data and samples that could be looked looked at and studied for signs of fossilized microbial life, which would be amazing. I think that makes the sort of trying to extract 2% extra efficiency on a, on a production line look uh, right. pretty small beans by comparison. <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd quite like to work on a data science project which discovered extraterrestrial life along the way, certainly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and not have somebody say, I think that's an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. how unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And and the fourth pillar is to prepare for human exploration of Mars. So gathering oh all of this experience in landing on another planet sends back all of the data of how it has encountered the atmosphere, how the landing system yes. has worked, how successful it has been, and um, ultimately how safe it might be and what we need to learn for the technological advancements to enable humans to ever journey to and land on and explore Mars. Very Elon Musk, then. Yeah, no, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's huge, huge. Uh, now you've um, got the investors uh, interested. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I must have watched about four docudramas about landing on Mars and all of the challenges and uh, extraordinary endeavors that that, that that is going to take for a, uh, a human landing. But yeah. we're really talking about a robotic landing here. This is a uh, quite an autonomous sort of effort. So why do you think this is a terrific exemplar of cutting-edge data science then? 
Yeah, the um, rover itself, it always reminds me of Short Circuit, the movie. Like, it is <laughs> as if we have put a robot representing us on another planet, roving around, picking up samples of data, sending back observations. It's taking selfies. <laughs> it has an arm with a camera on it, and it has taken its own respective selfie. And It's got a selfie stick. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> you can look at data live, not live, but the most recent data of photographs just photos of the surface of mars and it just looks like an old set from star trek it's amazing it's this barren dusty wasteland that really does look otherworldly it's phenomenal and this is a robot up there that we have sent doing it Um, and another really interesting bit is not just the perseverance rover itself but ingenuity is the name of a helicopter the the first powered flight Oh, I heard about this. Yeah, a, yes, um, from a, from a from a rotor craft. I think they were calling it, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. But in an extremely thin atmosphere. So, right. What I find really interesting thinking about it is we make such a massive point in our own history about the evolution of flight. We are now, I think, tomorrow as we record this. It's been postponed to tomorrow. Going to have the first flight on another planet, which is mind blowing. So that's that's what a fully autonomous rotor dri- a rotor driven flight on a, on another planet another world yeah that's that's just amazing happening tomorrow and all of the the sensing equipment the the data streams that are going to go into you know yeah. making that flight a success and then making that mission a success that this is surely why I mean this is data science sort of plus plus yeah because. The, the amount of data they're going to be getting and then the, the decisions or the inferences, I guess, they're going to make from that data is going to be really, really exciting. And you alluded to something there that um, acknowledges our, our previous episode, or well, our first Byte episode where we talked about the complementary team and what that means for data scientists and how important it is to have that diversity and wealth of knowledge and various backgrounds and everything. This is it at its pinnacle. You know, right. you bring together yeah. astronomers, physicists, engineers, computer scientists, geologists, astrobiologists, and your mathematicians, statisticians. <laughs> Everything comes into the mix to make this work, to make it yeah. a success. And it has to be as successful as we Real can team effort, it. then. Yeah. yeah, because it's it costs such... A fortune you know in funding and in time and effort and you only kind of really get one chance you know one mission only really has one chance to go right and and boy have they got this one right yeah there'd been a lot of failed attempts to get to mars certainly from from uh, british uh, uh, space exploration represents one of the most challenging planets to get to yeah and these flights, they're not cheap. I mean, you know, to get anything onto the planet of Mars, you're talking this one's sort of two to three billion dollars or something. Uh, probably yeah. considerably more once you start to think about um, supplementary flights and support flights and anything involving human beings. You could probably multiply that by ten. So <laughs> yeah. it gives you an interesting perspective on risk. I think when you're putting that kind of money on the line. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Your your project managers is one that I didn't mention and how crucial they are and managing. Oh that risk that's some risk register to be looking at when you're building out a mission like this and again just to echo what an amazing feat it is we are lucky enough to talk to professor paul byrne who's a planetary geologist um who's uh, really been involved with uh, with this this amazing story
Joining us today in the Data Cafe is Professor Paul Byrne. He's Associate Professor of Planetary Science at North Carolina State University. Paul, thanks for joining us. Jason, hi. I'm delighted to be here. So, Paul, you work in planetary science. Tell me about planetary science and the kind of work and research that you do. Sure. So, I am a planetary geologist. I studied geology of Earth. And for the last 15 years or so, I've been studying the geology of other planets. And the whole goal of planetary geology, in particular planetary science generally, is to understand how planets come to be and why they look the way they do. And the whole goal is to basically get more understanding of our own planet and how that fits into like the broader context of planets generally. So that's what I do. Cool. And so how do you study that, for example, on Earth in the first instance? So there's, there's I think, arguably kind of three main strands we can take to study geology of Earth. We can do fieldwork. You can go and you can take samples or you can visit a field site. You can take measurements. You can take photographs. Uh, you can do remote sensing work. So, for example, we use satellite data or we fly geophysical measurements and aircraft to look for ore bodies if you're doing mining exploration, for example. Uh, and then we can do any kind of number of laboratory or computer modeling back at home, back, back in the lab, back in your office, where you might have uh, numerical codes, analytical solutions to stuff, or you might have a geochemical lab. You might take rock samples and analyze them for their chemistry. This is a variety of ways you can do kind of back at home stuff with the overall goal of understanding what it is you're, you're seeing and then inferring is in the case of geology, but in the case of a lot of different planetary science disciplines, you often have very incomplete data. And so the goal, for example, in geology is you know what the surface looks like, and you might have some small inklings of what the subsurface looks like, and you've got to make sense of the whole thing in 4D, right? Not just the 3D shape of this thing, but also how it's changed through time. Is this a good place to look for silver? Is this a good place to look for oil and gas? Is this a good place to build a bridge? Is this going to suffer a massive earthquake? Is there any evidence of that in the past? Right. So that's the goal of how we do geology on Earth. And we pretty much do the same approach for understanding the geology of other planets. So how do we study it on other planets then? With great difficulty and with great expense. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a bit of a leading question, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's difficult. And it's, yeah. so, so basically, something changed in about the 60s in terms of planetary science, because up to that point, planets were essentially the almost exclusive domain of astronomers, with the exception of the moon, right? Because right. we yeah. found that there the whole time. Um, but until around the 1600s, planets were, you know, we knew of them. Um, we didn't know anything about them. We did not know how big they were. We had some ideas how far away they were, but not really. But we certainly didn't know what the surfaces looked like because all we could see were lights in the sky, right? dots with telescopes. But in the 60s, human beings began to explore the solar system with robotic spacecraft dispatched out to the planets. Yeah. And that turned, for example, Mars from a, a point of orange light in the sky to a world. And we saw impact craters, and we saw volcanoes, and we saw giant canyons, and we did the same for Mercury, we did the same for Venus, and then we did Jupiter and the giant planets. And suddenly this, this new discipline came to be, where we were able to actually study these worlds as worlds in their own right. And it's, it's grown since then, right up to the Apollo project in the late 60s, early 70s, where human beings walked on the surface of another planetary body and retrieved samples and brought them home. And we've been, for the last 50 odd years, being analyzing these samples in labs and learning amazing new things as recently as earlier this year about lunar samples. So the way we do geology to the planets is basically the same, except that it just, it's a lot harder. We fly spacecraft to other places. We photograph the surfaces from space. Sometimes we land. Sometimes we even rove 
So we're acquiring remotely acquired data. We now have at least four uh, Mars. We have uh, robotic rovers that are able to basically do field work. Uh, one of the one of the geologists' basic tools is what's called a hand lens, and you can imagine this is a little kind of thing you hold up and you look at the minerals and identify rocks. There is a hand lens imager on the Curiosity rover, and it does the very same thing, except instead of a human being looking at the grains in the rock, it's beaming that image home to Earth, and then people at home are looking at that and figuring out what, what the rock is made of. Um, and we have then analog work. We'll do field work on Earth to look to, to similar locales and draw inferences for the ways rocks are formed. For example, where the Curiosity rover on Mars is right now, it's in a place called Gale Crater, and it's exploring up the flank of this thing called Mount Sharp, this huge mountain in the middle of this crater. And we see layered rocks that form in water. And we know they form in water because of the certain chemical signatures that the rover is able to detect, and because we know that similar looking rock literally just looks the same, forms in water situations, like in standing bodies of water in a lake on Earth. And so we're able to go and tell. We don't have a direct measure of how old the rock is. We have ways of making inferences about it. We know that rock had, was absolutely laid down underwater, which means there was a lake inside Gale Crater probably around three and a half billion years ago. And we're able to do that by simply comparing what we know of Earth to what we're seeing on Mars. So we're doing field work on Mars. We're just using it as a robot because we haven't put people on Mars. That's going to be... That, that's just such an expensive thing. It's going to happen, but it'll probably be another 20 years away. So we've had humans do field work on, on the moon. We've had humans bring samples home from the moon. And we have lots of high-resolution data of the moon from orbiters uh, and landers that will help us make sense of what we're seeing, just like we do on Earth, just a lot more expensively. Yeah, that's really cool. And when you talk about some knowledge of the planets and what you might think is happening as a world. Is that based on some model that you have come up with before a mission is sent to one of these planets? Are you going out there with a hypothesis? Or is that, for example, a purely new discovery that you saw this evidence of a lake on, on Mars? So it, it depends. It's probably not one size fits all. In some cases, if we're going to visit somewhere for the first time, there are always going to be ideas to what we'll see often those ideas are wrong, which is good. Like that's how the scientific process works, right? Yeah. Um, and then those observations beget new hypotheses, which inevitably then require new data from a subsequent mission, which might be decades away from being flown, right? These missions are extremely expensive and they don't happen all that often. And so sometimes there are missions that are flown with a very specific purpose, a specific thing they want to test. Sometimes they're flown simply just to see what the thing looks like. You know, but, but there'll always be, to some extent, people cannot help but begin to speculate what we'll see or how something will work before it gets there. And then they can test their theories. And, you know, it's a great way of getting funding. If we have new data, we can test it this way. Um, but, yeah. but usually, usually there is, in fact, every time there is an element of brand new discovery, even for a mission that is nominally going somewhere to test an existing idea or acquire a very specific kind of data, there are new discoveries made. A good example to illustrate this is there's a mission called Grail Mission, that NASA flew about 10 years ago. And GRAIL uh, builds on work from the uh, GRACE and GOCHI missions, which were flown for Earth to characterize Earth's gravity field. And the long story short, one of the ways in which you can acquire the gravity field of an entire planet is you can fly two spacecraft in a row that have an extremely sensitive radio that can detect how far away they are from each other. And they are broadcasting back to base stations on Earth. And the idea is if you have already existing, which we did, good topographic data for the moon, in this case, you can look at the effect of the accelerations on the spacecraft, the distances between them, which will shorten and lengthen depending on what they're flying over. 
And if you can subtract the effect of topography, you can basically resolve, you can develop a model for what the gravity of the subsurface is like. And the reason this is important, for example, for the moon, is there's a, there's a phenomenon in geology called a mass con, which is a mass concentration. And it was discovered for the moon because in the early Apollo program, when they were flying spacecraft over the moon before they landed, they were finding that the spacecraft were accelerating over otherwise, by a very small amount, but accelerating nonetheless, over a very smooth, otherwise features boring volcanic plane, the so-called Luna Maria, the dark splotches on the near side of the moon. Yeah. Why would it be accelerating when there's nothing, there's no big mountain there? It turns out there's an enormous chunk of mantle, which is more dense than the regular crustal rock, much closer to the sur surface. And the reason the mantle is there is because that basin is a huge impact basin. And it turns out that within the first few, few minutes of an impact forming, which is 500 kilometers across, part of the mantle, which is a bit underneath the crust, which is made of much more iron and, and magnesium rich rock, basically rebounds like a, like, a, like a rebounding water drop up and freezes in that position. So the mantle is closer to the surface. You don't see any evidence of this on the surface, but it's there and its gravity signature is felt, and that's what it was accelerating the spacecraft. And so, long story short, we now have this unbelievably highly resolved, like to degree in order 1200 or something, it's very, very small spatial scale for the moon, of the gravity map of the moon. The mission was going to do this, this was the goal, but one thing we didn't know until the mission was finished is that, for example, the porosity of the upper surface of the moon is extremely high, which told us that the moon's crust is far more damaged than it sort of looks, because of four and a half billion years of being hit by stuff. Yeah. So even though the goal was to acquire this gravity data, and which we're only really now eight or seven years since Grail ended, uh, still beginning to be, just begin to pick through, we already made amazing discoveries about what was happening inside the moon that we cannot see from the surface. But that gravity mission, Grail, takes its inspiration, it basically follows the same approach that gravity missions for Earth have been done, which, which we frequently fly and update and tell us where there are subsurface concentrations of, of mantle material or, or, or even what the oceans are doing and how the ocean basins are changing in terms of what the fill is and what the ice caps are doing. So again, that's applying what we know of a geosystem on Earth to another planet. That's awesome. Because I've been itching to ask you about Mars and the Mars 2020 mission. And mm -hmm. it's amazing how much is still being explored and understood about something as relatively inert as the moon from mm -hmm. the viewpoint here on Earth. It's yeah. fascinating. And I'll say just one thing. The real value of doing this kind of work is not just you know national prestige or getting kids into STEM projects and uh, developing new technologies and spin-off patents and stuff. And all of that is true. But one of the real values scientifically of doing this kind of work is that Earth is an amazing world, but it's sort of a pretty bad world to learn geology on because Earth has plate tectonics. Okay. And plate tectonics doesn't seem at present, or really, I think in the past, to have operated anywhere else. And it means that we recycle the crust for this subduction process, right, which causes huge earthquakes. You know, your listeners have probably have heard of you know, plate tectonics and subduction and these massive earthquakes. Um, the oldest oceanic crust on Earth is around 200 million years. That's not very old for a planet 4,500 million years old. And there are some parts of the crust and the continents that are really, really old, but they're usually like slivers and they're not in good condition. And they're subject to rain and vegetation and people driving roads through them. Whereas on Mars and Mercury and the moon, you preserve that ancient rock record. So a good way to illustrate this is on the bit of the moon that we see, those huge big splotches, those big splotches are vast lava plains. That's why they look dark. And they're inside quasi-circular things. And those quasi-circular things are gigantic impact basins. 
Some of them are more than a thousand kilometers across. There are similarly sized impact basins on Mars, and there are similarly sized impact basins on Mercury. There's none on Venus, but that's a whole different conversation. It's a different podcast. I'm going to park Venus for a moment. <laughs> but the point is, what that tells us is Earth must absolutely have been similarly so affected. And Earth must have must have had thousand kilometer diameter impact basins way back when. But they're gone now because we have plate tectonics and we have an atmosphere and we have oceans. So we are able to calibrate and understand the geology of other planets by having access to geology here on Earth. But we are also able to understand Earth's ancient rock record, which is essentially lost to us by looking at those preserved records on other planets. So that's one of the real powers of planetary geology and planetary science generally. We call it comparative planetology. It's not just understanding one world. It's, it's how the whole thing fits together into a, into a network. And one of the things we see is there really so far hasn't been a process we've seen in another world that we cannot begin to figure out. There's huge unknowns. But we kind of recognize the fundamentals and everything. And there's only a finite number of processes that affect a planetary surface. But the variety and the breadth in which those processes are manifest is far greater than anything on Earth. And what that tells us is once we understand the basic tune, we can begin to understand the variations in that tune and how it's manifest differently in different places because of different starting conditions. And that's yeah. one of the powers of what we do. That's amazing. So with regards to Mars and the most recent mission that went up, Perseverance as a rover that's now roaming on the planet Mars, tell me a bit about your experience in seeing that mission and what it meant for you. I mean, it was incredible. The, the technological achievement to do what they did. It, well, let me just back up, right? So, so Perseverance is the second, it's a twin to a rover called Curiosity, which we landed on the surface of Mars in August 2012. And Curiosity and Perseverance are the fourth and fifth rovers, respectively, that NASA has landed on Mars. So, so it started with, with a rover called, a mission called Pathfinder and a rover called Sojourner in 1997. And Sojourner is the size of like a large microwave oven. And it was, it was essentially a tech demo. It was a proof of yeah. concept. Can we do this? Because we've never, we being human beings, had never roved on Mars before. We had automatic rovers, robotic rovers on the moon. The Russians had done that. But no uh, nation, no human had ever roved a, uh, anything on Mars. And the way that Mars represents kind of a, it's a tricky place to land stuff on. If you want to land on Earth, you can come in, you know, really fast. Like think this is how SpaceX does it. It's how the Apollo missions do it. It's how the Soyuz uh, capsules do it. You come in really fast with a heat shield. And then at some altitude, you blow a, a, a panel and out comes shoots, a drogue shoot and then a main shoot and you, you, you parachute down. If you're the Russians, you do what's called litho braking where you slam into the Kazakh steps at a few, uh, miles an hour. If you're the Americans, you land in the, in the ocean. The point is you're coming down on shoots because there's a thick atmosphere to do that. Yeah. The extreme of this is Venus. If you want to land on Venus, which the Russians did in the 70s and 80s, you bring a parachute. So you come in your heat shield, you're coming in at you know, hypervelocity speed because you're coming in faster than orbital speed usually. Uh, you come in, you have a heat shield, drop all that stuff, and then you, you have a parachute. And then at around 60 kilometers on Venus, you drop the parachute, you cut it off, and you free fall because the atmosphere on Venus is at the surface is 90 times atmospheric pressure on Earth. So you don't need a chute. You have a drag plate, so you can kind of stop the thing spinning too much, and you basically fall onto the ground. It's like dropping a probe off the side of a ship onto the ocean floor. So Venus, okay, separately, the temperature and pressure will kill you, and the sulfuric acid yeah, it's about sure. fly, right? But like dynamically, it's not that hard to get to the surface. Um, Earth, we've got parachutes. For, let's say, Mercury, which we've never landed on, or the Moon, which we have, no atmosphere, so you can't use shoots, but you can use retro rockets. 
And we've done this many times, we being humans, right? And we've had human beings actually fly themselves off the surface of the Apollo program. We've had uh, robotic uh, Russian, American, Chinese landers. And as long as you have the fuel, you can land and you can do a soft landing with a retro rocket and you just land down. The problem with Mars, you don't have enough of an atmosphere for big shoots, but you have enough of an atmosphere that you can't use rockets all the way down. So it's challenging. Okay. Yeah, I read that Mars was like 1% density of Earth's atmosphere. Yes, at the surface, right? But it turns out that if you're coming in at interplanetary speed, you are still, it's a hell of an atmosphere to deal with. So the way you land on, on Mars is with difficulty. Um, you come in as normal, high speed, heat shield, then you have a parachute. But to safely land a lander, you can then drop the chute at a few kilometers and come in on a rocket. And that's, for example, what the InSight lander has done, which is currently operating on Mars. It has a seismometer on board. The Phoenix lander in the late 2000s landed in the Northern Hemisphere near the North Pole. It came down on rockets. But if you want to put a, a rover down, the rover has to somehow come in some sort of like rover base station, which is what Sojourner did. And so it came in on airbags. And the way it came in is it came in on a parachute and then at a some few kilometers up, dropped, and then just ballistically fell. Because gravity is a third of what it is on Earth, but you're still going to accelerate. And then basically the airbag's inflated, and this thing looks like a nan is looking, it's like a bunch of Maltese just stuck together. And it bounces onto the ground, and then it rolls and self-rights, and then the airbags deflate, and then lo, this thing unfolds, and now comes another rover. I mean, that's an amazing technological achievement. Yeah. The rovers that follow Sojourner, Spirit and Opportunity, use the same technology. They used airbags, although it turned out that if you, that you can Google the, the images of the airbags for, for Spirit and Opportunity, these things were huge. They were like a 10 meters tall or something, but the whole you know, network of airbags. But what NASA determined was that that's probably, so the, the, the Spirit and, and Opportunity rovers are perhaps maybe about two meters wide, two meters long, a meter high, right, with, with their solar panels. They're hefty, but they're the size of, I don't know, like a deer? So what NASA worked out is that that basically represents the, the maximum size thing you can land with airbags. Okay. And so when it came to putting something like Curiosity, which is the size of a Mini Cooper on Mars, NASA had to come up with a new way of doing it. Airbags wouldn't cut it. And you don't want to come in on rockets all the way down because that's going to potentially seriously damage the rover in, in, in terms of how you would safely have the rover on board and not getting debris on it and stuff. So what they settled on was this idea called Sky Crane. So you come in in your heat shield and your interplanetary speed, you blow your, your heat shield after a while, then you drop your, your back shell uh, after a certain time, basically, ballistically free-falling, and then you come down on rockets. So now you have the rover underneath this thing called the descent stage, which is nicknamed Sky Crane, and it comes down basically like a jet rocket pack. And then when it's hovering at about 10 meters over the ground, it starts to drop lower down the rover on cables, which is now deploying its wheels. It continues to descend slowly, and then when it gets weight on wheels, on all six wheels and a bunch of other criteria are in, then those cables are snapped by guillotines and the descent stage rockets away. And that all happened, and this all has to happen in about seven minutes, six, seven minutes from the moment you get atmospheric interface to getting onto the surface of Mars. Right? And this all had to be completely automated. And they did this in 2012, and they did it again in 2021 with the Perseverance program. The biggest difference between what happened in 2012 and 2021 is that normally when you are landing on the surface of any planetary body, you have what's called a landing ellipse that you've got to try and land in. The landing ellipse basically is an area of uncertainty. You are going to land somewhere in that ellipse. And the size of the ellipse and the aspect ratio of the ellipse represents a whole pile of things that feed into this uncertainty model. 
what, uh, how exactly fast are you going? Because we don't have a speedometer on a spacecraft. We have to use things like radar tracking to figure out how fast it's going. Yeah. And the way the Russians did it, so like basically when you land on Venus, to this day, so okay, America's had landed on Venus. This is a kind of a sore spot for a lot of us. Um, but the way the Russians did it was it was ballistic. Like you know, once you set the thing going, there is very, very little attitude. There's some attitude control, but there's very little propulsive control in terms of actually steering or directing this thing. Yeah. And what that meant was the Russians decided roughly where they wanted to land and had a very large error ellipse, landing ellipse, and then basically just let the thing go, fall where it may. Um, to this day, although if you go to Wikipedia, for example, it'll tell you where the Venera landers are. It gives, I think it quotes it to like one decimal place in terms of long decimal degrees. We don't actually know where they are. We have a rough idea because, because of the accuracy of the, um, the radio tracking, but not to the point where we could say it's exactly, you know, 40 meters from here. You know, we've never seen these things from orbit because we've never had the resolution to see them. If we could work out where the Venera landers were, because we have photographs from four of those landers of their landing sites in terms of the terrain and not big landmarks, because you can't see that far in the way the cameras worked. But if we could understand from the, the orbital scale, and this is a perennial issue we have everywhere. If you can, and one of the reasons why the, the, the rovers are so powerful on Mars is we are now able in the case of Mars to go from the grain scale to the planetary scale completely uninterrupted. We have a continuum now from the hand lens imager I talked about to images of an outcrop from the rover to high resolution images of the rover to low resolution, huge regional scale maps. But if we had, and we had that for the moon too, in a few places. And again, for Mars in only a few places. But if we had that for Venus, for example, we'd be able to say, okay, now we know what radar data, because we have to use radar to see the thick atmosphere of Venus because it's opaque to visible light. We would be able to say, okay, now we know where this thing is, and we know what the land looks like on radar at this scale, because that's what we have a photograph of it at this scale, and we know exactly how to relate the two, and then we could use we could look for say exactly similar dielectric or backscatter properties in the other radar data we have for the rest of the planet and start to work out what the surface might look like. We can't do that yet. So So when you're talking there about how they land on the planet in the first place, part of what I read about the Mars twenty twenty mission was that it was a whole new demonstration of what they refer to as the terrain relative navigation, TRN. Have you seen that used before or what does it mean to use now for future missions? Because you're saying this is going to revolutionize how we land on any given planetary body. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Or it has the potential to be. So no, it's never been used before. This is brand new. And, And there's a very specific reason why it was developed. So when we land on planetary bodies, normally we have what's called a landing ellipse which is basically an area that shows the uncertainty as to where this thing is going to land and the aspect ratio of that ellipse the general the size of it that all reflects a bunch of different factors like uh, the exact moment of atmospheric entry uh, depending on the time of day the atmosphere will have different heights it'll have different scale heights and so you might encounter drag sooner or later or all kinds of other factors right Now, if you look at the size of the landing ellipse of Mars missions over the past few decades from, say, the Viking landers in the 70s right through to today, those ellipses were originally hundreds of kilometers long, and they've been shrinking down. Now, Curiosity, Perseverance's twin that landed in 2012, had up to that point the smallest landing ellipse ever for a Mars lander. And the reason was because it had the ability to, to a limited extent, steer itself during atmospheric entry. 
It had a rough idea where it was, whereas up to that point, historically, it would only ever be a ballistic entry, which means it's in the hands of the gods and luck and fate. This thing had the ability to a limited extent to basically control the entry corridor. And that meant that engineers could, could then work with a relatively smaller landing list because the area of uncertainty as to where it would land was proportionally smaller. That meant that Curiosity was able to land in what had been up to that point a completely unrealistic and forbidding place. It is inside a crater called Gale Crater, and on the on the edge of the crater you have these big walls, a tower of a couple of kilometers, and in the middle of Gale Crater you have this mountain called Mount Sharp, which is where we have these layered rocks, and it is one of the most interesting places you could go and look at the history of climate on Mars. But landing between a big cliff of the crater wall and a huge mountain, no engineer will normally say that's okay. But there's a compelling science reason to land there. That's what led engineers to develop the ability for Curiosity to steer itself a little bit on the way in to shrink the landing ellipse enough to give mission managers confidence that it would safely land in the flat area between the cliff and the mountain. For Perseverance, it has a very specific purpose, which is basically it is setting the stage for a, a much larger, uh, longer, and more ambitious project called Mars Sample Return. For it to do this, Ultimately, mission managers and the science team and the science community generally identified a particular place in Jezero Crater, where we think we see evidence of a, of a remnant ancient delta, basically a fossilized remains of a river delta, where we think a river was carrying sediment into a standing body. This crater existed already. It was a standing body of water. It was a lake. And this stuff just came in and over time built up. Now, those kinds of settings on Earth are rife with bacterial life. And if we are ever going to find evidence of potentially ancient fossilized microbial life on Mars, one of the foundational questions we have is, are we alone? And if so, why? And if not, why not? One of the most exciting places you can go is to look at these kinds of rocks and look for that evidence of fossilized life is in something like the layered rocks in Jezero Crater. The problem is that the actual area you want to get to near, near the delta is in an extremely difficult place to land. And if you are relying solely on ballistics, and even simply on that little entry interface thing you could do where you can kind of steer yourself during your entry sequence, your landing ellipse encompasses parts of the crater wall, parts of the much ruggeder uh, hummocky land beyond the delta, and parts of the delta itself. There is just no way you're going to risk a $2.5 billion rover with something as dangerous as that. You're just not. That required, driven by science, it's always fundamentally driven by science that required folks at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory building Perseverance to develop a new way of helping the rover identify a place and land itself that would, it would ensure a safe landing on the surface of Mars. Now, because of the relative position of Earth and Mars, it's something of order about seven light seconds when Perseverance made its, made its uh, landing. It depends on where Mars and Earth are relative to the Sun and each other. Uh, there is no prospect for having what we call ground in the loop. You cannot have a controller in mission control of the joystick because of the light delay. By the time they send a signal, the thing is already on the ground. It takes about seven minutes to get a signal from Mars. It takes about seven minutes to reach from the top of the atmosphere to the ground. So by the time we started to get the first signals back during landing day for Perseverance in February 18th, by the time we got those first photons back saying, hey, I've, I've entered the atmosphere, the rover was physically on the ground. Now, the rover was always going to be on the ground. The question is whether the rover is going to be in a little crater, bits of debris everywhere, or physically intact, right? And people have, at that point, it's 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 up to the computer. 
Yeah. But happily, it was the ladder, right? <laughs> it was, yeah, to be clear, it landed. It landed. It was safe as that. And that's where the terrain relative navigation system comes in. So basically, long story short, because of the quality data we have from multiple orbiters from decades at this point in orbit of Mars, we were able to make a really high-resolution topographic map of the area of interest in Jezero Crater. And then that map was uploaded to the computer's brain. And the computer in the spacecraft, in the rover, which is doing on the controller, it wasn't picking an arbitrary site on its own. It had this map in its head. But what was amazing with the terrain relative navigation, the reason it's called relative, is because it has this preloaded map in its head saying, here are the safe bits, here are the slightly riskier bits, here are the bits you must avoid at all costs. And then what it's doing is, during that last ascent, when it's coming down on the sky crane on this jetpack, it is acquiring data with LiDAR, and it is processing those data in real time and comparing them to the preloaded map. And then it is making its best decision as a function of where it happens to find itself to direct itself with the vector thrust on the descent stage to go and move the rover to an area it designates as safe. Which means the mission engineers knew roughly who it would be, but they did not know exactly who it would be until it made the decision. And it was the computer making the decision for itself as to where to safely put down. And if you go and you can Google the image of the terrain relative navigation map where you can see where this thing touched down, it landed in this little sliver of perfectly safe, surrounded on either side by no-go. I mean, the computer did it perfectly. Right. And those no-go areas would have been in its ellipse? They ab absolutely in its ellipse. Absolutely, yes. There were, much of its ellipse, it could not land in safely, either because the landing itself would damage the rover, or worse, the rover might land safely but be unable to drive out of that locale and just become a base station. Right? Because it, it wasn't just about landing safely, it was about then being able to be mobile and move thereafter. Terrain relative navigation system executes it perfectly. Now, the reason this matters for future missions is because this now opens the door to other robotic, uncrewed, non-human-in-the-loop or ground-in-the-loop landing systems. Let's say, for example, we want to land on the surface of Europa, which is a, an idea that's been kicked around. There isn't money for it yet, but, but NASA wants to land on Europa. One of Jupiter's moons? One of Jupiter's moons. Europa is a, is a, a fascinating place. It is a, it's, it's got an outer crust instead of rock. It's ice. There is we, strong evidence. We suspect that there is a liquid water ocean below, and then below that, again, it's rock. The kind of environments where, for example, we know life may have started on Earth, let's say hydrothermal vents, may be present in Europa. Not, we don't know for sure, but maybe. Uh, however, we don't know what the surface of Europa looks like right now at the scale of the lander. This is an issue we often have. And it was an issue that NASA had in the 70s with the Viking landers. We did not have the resolution to know where it would be safe at the scale of a lander because the images we would have from orbit were much coarser than that. Thanks to, for example, certain instruments we now have on the Moon and Mars in orbit, we now have images and other data in terms of, say, surface roughness of the surface at the scale of a lander, but we don't have it for most places. Now, NASA has a mission called Europa Clipper under development, and Clipper is due to launch mid this decade, possibly on a Falcon, 9, uh, Falcon Heavy, and it will get toward the end of this decade to uh, Europa. It won't orbit Europa. It'll actually orbit Jupiter, but it will do many flybys in Europa. There's a Jupiter has an unbelievably strong magnetic field and, and very, very high radiation environment, and it just wrecks instruments and, and electronics. So they've had to be very creative in how they devise this flyby, hence it's called Clipper. But but the goal of one of the goals, one of the many goals of Europa Clipper is to resolve the surface of, of Europa, at least in small areas, at scales relevant to a lander. Once we have those data, there's no reason we can't then process them in the same way we did for Mars, feed them into the lander's computer, 
and then using a very similar approach with this sort of rocket jetpack, basically, look ultimately to drop something onto the surface of Europa. Again, with humans not in a loop, allowing the computer to make the decision for where the safe place to go is, depending on what you fed into it in the first place. So, and I'm sure there are, there are scenarios that I haven't even thought of. You know, Mercury, more landers on Mars, landers on the moon. Once you have the ability of telling a computer, here's what you what the landing site looks like, here's where we want you to go, and here's where we don't want you to go. Now you have the capability of acquiring and processing data for comparison in real time during the descent when there is no second chance. Yeah, We've already validated that technology, which means we will see it fly again. And that is going to open up. At the very least, it shrinks landing ellipses. Yeah. which means that we can now be more selective in where we want to go. Instead of saying we have to target this boring, vast plane of lava, because we know at 100 kilometer length scale it's safe, now we can say, let's go near that really interesting, weird outcrop. We don't know what the mineralogy from space is. Let's go land there. That's what things like terrain, relative navigation. The rover itself has some uh, enhanced autonomy in where it's able to drive. Now, it never drives on its own. And again, because of the light delay, there's no human with a joystick or a mouse. It's all command lines that are uploaded in, in a command sequence, and the thing moves, and it takes its command to take all these images, it beams the images home. The, each day, the rover operations teams can see you know, where it's moved, is it where they think it should be, with the right direction. But there are definitely ways the rover has now of, of looking at its landscape, using its navigation and its hazard cameras to basically make informed decisions to the team as to where it thinks it's safe. That's a level of autonomy we haven't had before. We're going to continue seeing that kind of autonomy developed and enhanced for subsequent missions. All of it in service, ultimately, of more precise, more accurate uh, landing and, and surface operations on planetary bodies, not just Mars. And this gets to the whole idea of Mars sample return, because what's going to happen is, and one of the goals of Perseverance, is to collect little vials of, of soil and rock. It has a drill, so it can take cores. And ultimately, through a very convoluted and expensive process, return those samples to Earth. So if you can imagine the amount of work it's going to take and the coordination it's going to take to get the samples, deposit them in, in particular places, the goal is later to have what's called a fetch rover land near Perseverance, which again will require unprecedented accuracy because you don't want to land 300 kilometers away because the rover will never last 300 kilometer drive. It's probably won't. Right. So you want to land nearby. Fetrover will come up and collect these little caches and, 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 and basically put them on board. And ultimately, it will collect all the cache, all the little samples that, that Perseverance has been kind of pooping at a random place in these little vials, this very complicated sampling system. Fetrover is then going to bring it back to the thing it landed on, which now has a rocket of its own called the Mars Ascent Vehicle. It's going to basically, this is all autonomous again. Yeah. I mean, you can program it, but it, there's no human doing this in real time. It takes these little samples, these vials, this kind of you know, module or capsule, puts it into the rocket, which then closes up. The rocket then fires and goes into Mars orbit. Then a third element of this entire mission, which is basically, I think it's called the Earth Return Orbiter, which will be the largest orbiter ever flown to Mars because it's not just going to Mars like every other orbiter. It's coming home. Yeah. The Earth Return Orbiter will, will arrive into Mars orbit, spend a while there, checking its systems out, and it's then going to rendezvous with this capsule, which is now in orbit of Mars, grab the capsule. Now, imagine how difficult it is to, say, get the space, the space station, right, or the Soyuz capsule, or Dragon. Right. This is, this is a, a, an autonomous robot at a different planet, finding a capsule the size of probably about a football. It grabs this thing, ingests it, then turns around, fires its thruster to leave Mars orbit, which never had a spacecraft have to leave Mars orbit before. 
it'll fly back to Earth, and then it will let the capsule go. The capsule in a reentry system, it'll come in, we'll get those samples out of the surface. I mean, it's the amount of technological, the challenges that haven't even been encountered yet. Yeah. All in service of getting samples back from Mars to Earth. It's absolutely fascinating. It's mind-blowing. It really is. It is a phenomenal endeavor. And I purely cannot fathom the amount of like nerves that it must be involved when you see such a feat of engineering and technological advancement in the exploration of another planetary body. It's just amazing. It's stunning. It's stunning. Yeah. I mean, you know, we weren't around for the Apollo missions. We will be around, I hope, for Artemis or whatever replaces Artemis when we see humans back on the moon. But f until then, this is this is as, as close as we can get to see the, the amazing technological achievement to put something on the surface of Mars with the accuracy and precision of Perseverance. To see the images, your, your, your listeners can go. If you Google Perseverance raw images and Curiosity raw images, NASA uploads raw data before really any processing except basic processing every day. You can go I and mean, then uploads aren't every day, depending on what the rover's doing. But you can see these images. They come down unfiltered. And you can go and modify them and play with them. You can see what it's seeing every day. And it's astonishing. You can, you know, what was it like today? It was cloudy on Mars today. You can see that picture. Yeah. You know? Like to live in the era where we have that is just amazing. Yeah. It, it, it brings it home. It's, it makes it so real. Paul, that has been really, really amazing to hear. Thanks very much for joining us at the Data Cafe today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jason. Oh, wow. So I think that's that's a really impressive challenge then to get this set of data off of another planet. I think that brings it home dramatically how uh, what an investment in technology in engineering and then you've got this data you know either through the experiments that that you've been running or are running and then the experiments that you will run in the future on yeah. all of these samples potentially so what what, a, what an extraordinary story what an amazing application for data science to be involved with yeah even when you mentioned the ongoing work on lunar samples i mean how much more can there be to do with a rock from the moon it's just baffling. when were we last on the moon i mean it was what, in the 70s yeah. maybe i think yeah. just before i was yeah born so that's and yet it's still going strong exactly and i think it's because of the advances in scientific techniques in computational power in modeling the cutting edge things that we employ as data scientists in a lot of our areas are being applied to the same materials that have come back from um, other worlds which is uh, really impressive to me and in fact Paul talks about this this, this field I'd never heard of called comparative planetology mm. uh, which I thought but but when he explained it I thought that's fantastic that's exactly what data scientists do they try and infer statistical patterns from one set of data and, and then try and apply it to another scenario where they think there is this commonality. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what they're doing between, not just within an, a, an industrial application area, but between planets. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking, are they setting up an A-B test between <laughs> two yes. planets? Because yes. that, that can't be happening, right? But, yeah. but fundamentally, yeah, this is what we're doing. We're comparing planets and the discoveries from the observations of planets. Because again, all of these observations are only samples 
and they're very limited in you know the extent to which we can get an overall picture of what it is we're observing which is typical of every science everything you do is a sample whether it's sampling at a really minuscule level or a global level and here we are doing it with planets yeah, and when you when you have enough though, when you have enough data that you can with confidence say, Get confident, yeah. I I have seen that you know set of striations on a rock before on planet Earth, and I can tell you with a level of confidence, with a a certain probability, I guess that there has been water formation on that rock involved yeah. with the creation and the moulding of that rock. And I'm, I'm transferring that knowledge from one, one environment to another, you know, nonetheless able to make that kind of connection. I think that's, that's just spectacular. Yeah, and I was, again, mind-blown when Paul said Earth was a bad place to yes. do these observations. I mean, that was yeah, just... Yeah, not, not a great place to do geology. I thought that really struck home. And so the idea that there's this, what is it, 4.2 billion years of basically missing data on Earth because we have these tectonic plates which just suck everything down and destroy it and recycle it. Yeah, that was amazing. Again, you know, it's, it's such a classic data scientist problem. How do you how do you cope with missing data? Will you find another comparable setting yeah. and you say, oh, well, look, I've got pictures of of rocks it's like a time series right Right. and and i can use that i can use that to discover the pattern that i need and then patch the the missing data that i have exactly yeah earth's time series is botched or incomplete at certain points in in its history you know there was so much that came out of of this from from the data science perspective the fact that we want to you know, show with this mission. So we're doing hypothesis-driven approach. We're pivoting when we discover that our assumptions, which often are wrong, right out of the box, but you know, allows us to go, oh, wow, that's completely not true. So what is true? What can we learn from this, this data that we're collecting? The demonstrations of technology as well, off the back of that, that he mentioned everything is led by the science, but enabled very much so by the technology and we see it in the rover technology that yeah. when you read about it they've made the wheels more sturdy they've strengthened its arm for the camera they've changed how it senses its environment and they've put together this caching you know we, we were talking about geocaching mm. it's, you know the idea of going to certain coordinates and picking up a sample it's a fun hiking activity that people do here, here on earth paul talked about a mars return mission where they'll send up another robotic spacecraft and go and retrieve these samples that the current perseverance is putting on the surface for for future science yeah, so I was tr- I was trying to connect how how they were getting how long it was going to take to get these rocks back because it it required this sort of complex synchronization of two or was it even three uh, missions to bring these uh, samples back to Earth and it's it's at least seven months, isn't it, to bring to to do a one way mission back from uh, Mars. So so yeah. you know this yeah. this is a depending where the planet is, yeah. Right, of course it does. Yes, yeah. So I mean, it's quite a trek just to, just to get just to get some rocks to be able to do the experiments with. Yeah. And that alignment of missions is really impressive. I think in my readings that this um, Mars exploration program is planned up until 2026. And what really impressed me at that point was it will have been going for 30 years and covering a number of missions. I mean, you can read up on them online um, and 
Beyond that, I don't know what's proposed, but I presume that a lot of the learnings off the back of a mission like this will then enable those proposals and the funding and the additional missions. It drives a huge amount of um, excitement. It drives a huge amount of just high quality scientific publicity. But but most of all, it, it drives by necessity development in the underlying technologies that you know are required yeah. to just just perform this extraordinary feat. But I mean, I was really taken by just the landing technology that was needed and the development along the way um, that that that. Paul was talking about to, to be able to do that. That whole landing ellipse idea, I mean, that yes. just speaks to me so much as a scientist, just generally, that you have to have transparency on your certainty or uncertainty, as the case always is, and an error bar to quantify that somehow. And this is what our landing ellipse is when he's talking about these missions, you know, saying, we know it's going to land somewhere here, but how big is that ellipse and how small can we get it with all of these advancements in technology? And yeah, I think you're, you're alluding to the um, terrain relative navigation system, right? Yes, that, that blew my mind. That was just such a phenomenal piece of technology. It did this wonderful thing for me of saying, um, of course, there's no sat-nav on Mars. I mean, they are very specific satellites around Earth. You can't just put a whole infrastructure of sat-nav on Mars. You know, it's so, it just, there's those silly moments where I realise what I'm taking for granted on my phone in my pocket. You know, and the amazing technology that we have. And now we send that up to another planet and it's on its own. And we're sending up batches of commands. And what we need to do is build in a level of autonomy that gives us confidence that our ellipse is manageable, that our lander is going to be successful. And that TRN, it speaks to me for all the advances in computer vision, in AI We talked about self-driving cars, you know, all these ideas of bringing in sensors that allow your machine to learn, hence the name machine learning, and make decisions. It was a really decent example, a really powerful example of a reinforcement learning agent taken to the sort of the next level if you like i mean this is a a mission a a spacecraft that has got to it's been given an initial best guess or best scan of the terrain of the layout the geography um, of the planet that it's going to but it's recognized that that's only okay at a certain resolution And when the mission is descending through the atmosphere, it can then have a better view on where it's going than any prior map or prior understanding. So it's got to update its knowledge, hasn't it? And imagine how little stake it has. It's not alive. Like when they talk about landing on the moon and looking out the window to make sure that you avoid the area that's, you know, problematic to land in. I mean, I'm an astronaut. My health is on the line. This is a hazard to me, you Mm. know, to land somewhere wrong. This is a machine. We need to invest the capability in the machine to now make a decision that means all of our hopes and aspirations on the back of it are not dashed. Absolutely. Famously, Neil Armstrong had to 
adjust the landing position <laughs> of the of the first lunar mission because he could see that that where they had originally thought it was going to land wasn't going to work and and there's this fantastic tape you can listen to where you know that you can hear them playing the amount of fuel that i've got left as a as a running metric so that absolutely everybody in mission control and on uh, on apollo can hear it saying you know this is this is how much time you've got to play with to make sure this is mission ends well neil like my heart's going just talking about it (laughs) i know i know and yet so but this thing's doing it without human intervention it cannot have human intervention because of the light distance from from mars to earth we almost forget sometimes just how far away these things are it is a vast expanse of empty space where the signal i think paul paul mentioned it was seven minutes i mean yes that's huge weight to be sending batches of code up and not knowing has the outcome worked in the way that you thought I think he said, by the time you think it's entered the atmosphere, it's already landed. <laughs> I love that. And then as it's going down, it's applying this fantastic reward function, not just to so, yeah. am I going to be successful in landing here? Now I've got this refined uh, model of the terrain beneath me, but also, am I going to be able to navigate a rover out of there? Which is like, that's quite a complex reward function you're having to apply to already a pretty high risk and real-time reactive <laughs> system. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I love that. I thought that was that was such a priceless piece of science and uh, and data science that they must have um, been through. So the amount of testing they must have had to have done on that must be phenomenal. Yeah, there's some lovely interviews with the engineers and technicians that were involved in the build and the proof of concepts here on Earth initially as part of the whole proposal and demonstration that tech that was needed to achieve it and and wow yeah they achieved it i mean hearing paul say it did it perfectly there's um, no better proof than that you used a word in the middle uh, of the interview jason which i think perfectly sort of summarizes this which is you know what a terrific endeavor that for me sort of summed it up and i think maybe in the future when we're all driving our our self-driving cars and uh, sort of... Yeah, not driving is the case, maybe. Well, right. Exactly. <laughs> Sitting back. <laughs> Hence the name. Sitting back, <laughs> listening to a podcast. <laughs> listening, to your, listening to the uh, 872nd episode of Data Cafe. <laughs> with, uh, I, I think we'll be, we'll be relying on the sort of technology that's come out of the Perseverance uh, mission. And what an extraordinary effort that is, an endeavour that is to have got there. And it touches upon such beautiful messages for the importance of space exploration that just gets me so excited by everything that we're doing right at the point of sitting down and writing some code knowing that somewhere some piece of code that somebody wrote is driving a rover on another planet thanks for joining us today at the data cafe You can like and review this on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk or on Twitter at datacafepodcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.